John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 1178.2T0313, certificate number 35570. Soapy Smith. With a pistol in his pocket and a rifle in his hands, Soapy went alone to fight the vigilante band. To shoot a few and chase the rest into the icy bay They'd wish they'd never messed with Soapy Smith of old Skagway Now you and I are both uh, Americans from the western states It's kind of our brand And we have uh, We don't like easterners, we don't like those dudes That's right, those eastern dudes With their big city ways They're elites and their diamond tie sticks I hate the diamond tie sticks so much <laughs> they always come into town with a fat a fat gambling wad that's right and their and their slick brocade waistcoats <laughs> but you and i both kind of have a uh, a frontier uh story or or past in our history uh you you've talked about yours kind of extensively I'm from the Mormon frontier and you're from the last frontier I'm from the last frontier of Alaska but also my you know, uh, my ancestors came west to Seattle in the uh, mid mid to late 1800s as part of a post-Civil War migration to the west. It's way ahead of the curve. Even most of the natives here had families that came here in the mid-century for, for Boeing or Hanford or something. Yeah, when we arrived in Seattle, it was still a uh, still a small, bustling town on the very edge. And I think uh, I think you and I both identify with a sort of uh, with the the spirit of the West, wouldn't you say? Like it is, it is one that is uh, more egalitarian, more more based in a kind less about who your family is, where your where you went to college, what your what your uh, your long history is, and more about the gumption. I find I really do bridle at my Seattle friends, and I don't. I'm surprised when I see it myself. When my Seattle friends with East Coast heritage talk about the summer camps they're going to send their kids to, or the Ivy League alumni things they're doing, it really rubs me wrong. Yeah. And if I was from my milieu but on the East Coast, I don't think that would. Ha- it would just be second nature to me. I, I went one summer and vacationed with some East Coast friends, uh, two separate groups, one uh, up in Maine and then another on Cape Cod. And both times I spent the whole, you know, t- two weeks 
one week with each. I spent the whole time going, well, this isn't as good as the Northwest. Why do you guys insist on vacationing at Cape Cod? What a what a dull place. You should come to Anacortes. If you've seen the landscape of the West, it's really hard to go back. I do find something kind of peaceful about the vast deciduous forests of the eastern U.S. because we don't have that. Right, we those have, are nice. We have hardy pines and cedars and hemlocks. Um, but, yeah, the... It's hard to just the natural appeal. It's it's hard to beat the West and the the you know the rolling hills with the little church and the graveyard every what what seems like hundred yards up there. It is there's a there's a uh, think how lazy they were. They wouldn't walk. They wouldn't walk more than hundred yards to church. You know, it's like here we need to build another church. There's been a hill and a dale. I'm not walking a block to church. But there's something at least in when I think about our Western heritage, I think of us as being. Descendant from a restless type or sort. Why else would you come here? Right. If you were if you were content and socially prominent in Boston, why would you leave Boston? You wouldn't. And if you made it all the way out to Western Massachusetts, <laughs> you'd stay there unless you were unless you didn't like Tanglewood uh, jazz. Or yeah. <laughs> if you were, and and it seemed like it was always either that you were driven out or that your your spirit could not be contained by the local town. It's the explanation for the American character being what it is, for better or for worse. These are all the people who left somewhere else, maybe right. not always at their own invitation. But the frontier, uh, as we say here on this program. I say frontier. You say frontier like a weirdo. Is that is that how it broke out? Oh, wait. No, I had it backwards. No, it's the other way around. It's the other way around. Uh, it... it uh, it, by definition, is a lawless place. It's what attracts people in the first place. It's uh, not, we should not get the impression that it's totally lawless up here. We're it, doing a great job of sitting home watching Netflix right now <laughs> instead of being out in our non-essential businesses. The law followed us here to Seattle and, and gained a foothold uh, despite our best efforts. We had to police ourselves, and that's why we are the, the rural Nazis that we are today. Right. But what would put you on the on the bleeding edge of the frontier uh, was probably not uh, that you were seeking lawful and calm, uh, placid life, but that you were looking for adventure, which often is accompanied by well, adventure or freedom. Both things are are accompanied by a lack of shall we say, structure. And this is a part of the West I don't quite understand, this kind of default idea that all strictures are bad. I guess I'm thinking about the the Ronald Reagan thing of, uh, it's so scary when someone says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Right. You know, just the illusion of the West that everyone would just do so much better if they could be left alone and nobody tried to tell them what was what. And Left alone to graze their sheep wherever they damn well please. Right. That that I think is mostly an illusion and kind of a self-absorbed one, like maybe a narcissistic one. Yeah. But uh, there must be something of it in me, just the way I culturally turn up my nose at a lot of, what, decadent East Coast ways. But even the decadent East Coasters were escaping from, I mean, if they were really comfortable people, they would have stayed in... Brighton. But they were less good. The first thing they saw, they were like, eh, eh, Massachusetts, it's yeah. fine. Yeah. We got the people who were really, well, they were they were really willing to put their money, their shoe leather where their mouth was. Yeah, and risk death and risk misfortune. We, we talked about a lot of that recently on our Prairie Schooner episode. But uh, 
But if you were the type of person that felt like Denver had too many rules in in 1880. <laughs> I want to hitch up my horse over there. And he said I had to hitch it up over there. Or you felt like Seattle had too many rules and had to head even further afield. It really was a um, – there. well, there just aren't that many more places It's a short go. list. Yeah, the thing is. about the Northwest is journeys end here. Once you leave here, you have to go back somewhere. You have to go back. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of – to get to Seattle, you had to pass a lot of wilderness that you could kind of – you could leapfrog back to the Rockies and still find. I mean, in central Idaho to this day, there, there's a great area of trackless wilderness. It's probably a wind farm now. No, they – eventually, eventually when, when, uh, when the city slickers finally colonize every inch of it – but there's a, I mean, if you think about it, you can cross northern Idaho and southern Idaho, but central Idaho, there's no, there's no route in unless you're prepared to pack it, hump it. It's too lukewarm. It's for those who couldn't choose whether they were northern Idahoan at heart or southern Idahoan. <laughs> there's, there's nobody there. It's like the DMZ. And you can still freeze to death in plenty of places in Colorado, even though uh, Denver is a, a city of millions now. But I assume the, uh, it's your kind of uh, the city of your childhood or the, the land of your childhood, Alaska, is really the only option for a lot of these people who got to the Northwest, somehow lost their stake or whatever, or didn't like it and thought, now what? Alaska's self-image really is of a place that you can go even to this day, although less so all the time, and make your way like unfettered by institutions, un... un uh, unrestricted or restrained by anything but the most basic fundamental laws of the nation. Like you cannot murder in Alaska, but short of that, or right, much. You can murder bears from a helicopter. You can, well, no, they made made shooting wolves from a helicopter temporarily illegal. Oh, is that just just coronavirus? (laughs) (laughs) That's an essential business. (laughs) <laughs> it, even to Alaskans, it seemed a little unfair. I think you can still hunt wolves from a bulldozer, though, while you're busy also building a road. I think the law should be, but the wolf has to be in a bulldozer. Like, you have to do the footloose thing or whatever. Right, right. I see. If you're in a helicopter, the bear has to be in another helicopter and can shoot back. <laughs> it's only fair. When I was a kid growing up in Anchorage, you know, the the motto of the state is the Great Land. But... When I arrived in Alaska as a little kid, it had only been a state for 10 years. Oh, wow. And uh, the premise was still that you could come up and stick some, I mean, literal stakes in the ground and go to the land office and claim that as yours. And if you improved of the land and lived on it, uh, it you could you could stake a claim. And You don't have a lot of choice. Like, Seattle seems like your last stop. Alaska really is, unless you're going to cross the international date line and become a Siberian nomad. Alaska is Inuit for, this is it, buddy. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> and, it, and there's still so much trackless land up there. Um, not, as, not as much free and available land at the intersection of two navigable rivers close to a supermarket. But plenty of plenty of lakes and valleys and forests that um, that are still still available, although a great a great percentage of the land, and we'll talk about this on a future omnibus uh, as part of the the Native Claims Settlement Act, um, a lot millions of acres 
were set aside for the indigenous people of Alaska. So you can't just go up and pick anywhere on a map. A lot of that but, land, but belongs. we're white people. That's what we all. That's kind of our thing. I know it is, and there's still millions of acres available for the the poor downtrodden whites that just want to be left alone. Well, do you guys have a name, a word like Howley for um for like mainlanders that come up to Alaska? Chichaco. Chichaco. And Chichaco is a um a Chinook jargon word. <laughs> it all comes together, and it's one of the Chinook jargon words that became. We we don't really say Chichaco here in Seattle anymore. Because Chinook jargon has gone away, but Chichaco became an, an Alaskan part of the, just the Alaskan lexicon, and it, I don't think it, a lot of Alaskans recognize it as having come from Chinook jargon, which would have been which would have originated in in uh, Oregon territory. When it was used in Seattle, did it mean out of towner? Yep, yep. It meant it meant uh, East Coaster with the diamond tie tack. Uh, anybody that didn't understand our, our wild, wily Western ways. Johnny come lately, Aravists. But in, in Alaska, it does mean anybody that has just arrived from California, anybody that doesn't understand um, how you pronounce Kuskokwim, anybody that doesn't, you know. Uh, Your charming native folkways. Yeah, that hasn't adopted our, um, our own traditions. And actually, one of those traditions is the story of Soapy Smith. He's a he's a local folk hero. He is like a, a Johnny Appleseed. He Did he is, plant soap? He is a folk hero in Alaska, and he is a folk hero um, of a of a certain kind, which is to say, an unabashed villain with very few redeeming qualities. Now, there's not a lot of that in folk hero dumb. Like, right. Even when there's an outlaw or a bandit with ballads about them, often it's because. They had a lady love, or they would give some of their their bounty to the poor. They were being chased by the law unfairly. Yeah, but Soapy Smith is not some romantic Ned Kelly type. He's he's a mustache twirling villain. He is, and in Alaska, for some reason, and part of it is the is Alaska's self mythologizing. Um, Soapy Smith was a was a gold rush character, and. Alaskans love him and sing his songs and and sing his praises, despite the fact that he was a con artist, a uh, like a shyster, a murderer. You did you did murderer third? Uh, well, after you know. shyster, <laughs> um, murderer. He didn't murder as much as he shysted. But yeah, he, you really can't. He did not have a a deathbed conversion. He did not. That there is an element. Uh, of his story that is a little bit heartwarming. He would pay for dead prostitutes' funerals. Uh, <laughs> famously, he, that's that's always been my brand. No prostitute on his not, uh, on his payroll, not on my watch. Ever uh, ever didn't get a, a decent burial. Is now how are we going to set this up? Are you going to tell us about all his infamy and and villainy, or are you going to try to make the case for him and why he's a folk hero? Well, so he was a he was a. Uh, in some ways, a classic frontier character, and and has uh, echoes uh, of some of my family. Uh, he was a Southerner, born in Georgia. Uh, my people are all from Kentucky, and was he was born uh, immediately, sort of uh, at the at the start of the Civil War. So his his early childhood was spent in Georgia during the Civil War, and then. And he came from a prominent family of plantation owners and and attorneys. If he was born in Georgia in 1860, 
And his name's Jeff. I wonder if he's named for Jefferson Davis. His name is Jefferson. So Jefferson Smith is the name of Jimmy Stewart's character in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah. But, but there the resemblance ends, I assume. Almost certainly named for Jefferson Davis. Huh. Uh, and he, his family suffered ruination at the end of the war. They were dispossessed of, of their slaves and plantations and social prominence. This the same thing happened to, uh, to my Kentucky relatives who were also slave uh, owners, plantation owners. And, uh, and, and eventually, you know, I think that the grandson of the plantation owner always becomes a lawyer or a judge, just sort of legitimizing the whole enterprise with a, with a white seersucker suit. You're in the, the Michael Corleone of, uh, <laughs> of 12 Oaks. That's right. Now who's naive, Kay? <laughs> uh, but at the end of the war, they were, um, you know, kind of driven out of the South and went, uh, my people went to St. Louis, uh, the Smiths went to Texas. And it was somewhere in Texas where a young Soapy Smith who was trying to cut it as a as a Bronco Buster and a cowboy. Not yet Soapy, probably. Still not just, Soapy. Still just Jeff. The just, only folk hero named Jeff, I bet. Just Jefferson Smith uh, was he, – he realized that being a cowboy was a lot of hard work. And he became – he started to be a little bit of a card sharp. And I don't know if you know we, – we have a lot of phrases in English um, about uh, – where we describe – Con artists as bunko artists. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know what bunko is. Do you know what what bunko no, is? I, I know the fraud division of police departments is often called bunko the squad. Bunko squad, but and bunko. I, and I think my wife used to play a dice game called bunko. And that's it. Is that it? The origin of the story, or the origin of the phrase bunko artist and bunko squad, is a dice game called bunko, where uh, where a pretty large group of players roll three dice, and if you can roll. Three of a, it's a, I'm not going to get into how Bunko is played. It's, it's, um. We should get Mindy on the show. It turns out she's an elderly African-American man rolling dice in an alleyway. (laughs) And I had no idea. And Bunko has a very, a a, a very unusual sort of story where it, um, it has a three card Monty aspect to it. It's it's, It's not a straight game. It's a confidence game because you can, you can cheat at it. But it is also a straight game where there is no – where it's 100 percent um, roll of the dice. There's no if, – if Bunko's being played fairly, it's, there's no skill involved. Yeah, this was like a church wives thing I think in someplace where we were living and, and uh, my wife got dragged into it. And they were, I'm sure, playing it on the square. But yeah, yes, it was 100 percent. Let's roll the dice. Oh, you got a nine. And I was like, Mindy, how is this a game just – this is bingo night. Well, weirdly, as time has gone on, like Bunko was uh, was a popular scam, uh, you know, sort of. It, it goes all the way back to the 19th century as a kind of, you know, a, a, as a a game on an overturned uh, Bar- apple crate, barrel or whatever. Yeah, like a, in an alleyway. But it it then spends time as a legitimate game, uh, and extremely popular with church moms. It's, it's so much so that it's thought of as a as a women's game. Hmm. Bunko is a kind of I don't know a, a a chaste dice game that you can play. It's funny that we still call fraud divisions Bunko squads, as if it were you know Yahtzee squad or something. Now that it's just, it's been totally uh, what uh, emasculated. Yeah, but it, but it but it it flips back and forth as a popular uh, as a popular form of confidence. Soapy Smith or Jefferson Smith uh, got into being a bunko con man, and 
was playing all those street corner games, uh, three card Monty and, you know, uh, the different versions of that done with cards and became kind of a, a little bit of a ringleader of a group of young, uh, you know, young scam artists Hoodla? in te- in Texas, Hoodla, that's right. Uh, and eventually kind of followed the, followed the westward energy to Denver and arrived in Denver in 1879. Now he was born in 1860, so he was only 19 when he arrived in Denver and started sort of consolidating a little gang of ruffians and, and, uh, and scammers and, Increasingly, sort of institutionalizing the the sleight of hand style of of scam until he became a little bit of a like a a baron of vice. He could have been in close up magic. He could use those same skills for good. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, 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 there is a connection to that that mm. that we see a little bit later. But. Um, but he became somewhat of a famous personage in Denver. He opened up uh, his own bar called the Tivoli Club, and right over the door, he was very bald, uh, faced about this kind of stuff. He right over the door of his club, he had a big sign that said "Caveat Emptor," and he was uh, he was a public uh, voice for. I mean, he 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 admitted publicly that he was scamming people out of their cash. But if you think about the West and you think about the popularity of gambling and um, and just vice in general, there is a there is a profound through line that suggests that Westerners were dupes. Do you think do you think maybe it's the abundance of the West? Like the the hills are filled with gold, so it's okay to come into town and lose your whole stake at a craps table or or on some con game or on liquor because you you go out and make it again. I think that's true, and I and I think there's also a feeling of um, I, that you would enter into a game that you knew was crooked or suspected was crooked. I mean, people play the lottery because they're going to get a little fun out of it. Right. They know they're not going to win. But that you would lose your whole grub stake yeah. on the, a roll of the dice in a, in a game in a house you knew was crooked feels like a kind of Western overconfidence <laughs> that you are smarter even than the, than the fraud, right? That you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to see the card trick and know it. And that's why a lot of uh, a lot of confidence men will show you will will appear to show you their fraud, right? I, I, I one time, I, right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was in, you know, in West Berlin with a couple of friends, and it was two days after the wall opened, and there was this massive influx of people, just uh, sort of naive East Germans, just wandering the streets, kind of in awe of all the neon signs. People from all around the world congregating there. It must have been a golden age for uh, for three card money players. It was incredible, and there were three card money players everywhere. And there was a guy is sitting out in a field that had what seemed like fifty thousand just aimless, not quite refugees, but just people that from on the other side of the curtain that didn't know they they were here now, and nobody had a place for them. Right. There was a little confidence game, and I was with two Americans. 
and they were playing with 50 Deutschmark bills, which was 25 bucks. You know, mm-hmm. this was this was big money. And the confidence man, you know, they were doing all the normal scams that you would think of, right? You could tell that he had friends in the audience that kept winning money off of him. Right. You have to, you have a shill who beats you a few times enough to get somebody else to put their money on the table. But he did this crazy. wonderful thing, which was kind of allow us to stand behind him and see we saw the scam. We saw the, you know, the um, the ball roll it's from like one pen, shell to It's like Penn and Teller doing their trick with the transparent stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a double trick, right? Because from the front, it looked honest, but he was aware we were watching. Why did he let you guys do it? He knew you weren't going to put any money on the Because he crate? was playing with his, his friends. And eventually one of my companions threw this 50 Deutschmark thing on the table. And I, I was stunned. What are you doing? You just saw. And he immediately ran the scam on us. And my friend lost his money. And then the apple crate got picked up and they disappeared into the crowd. You know, they'd been playing this game for 20 minutes just trying to find one sucker. There's often an element where, especially if you, uh, yeah, once they've got their stake or if somebody accidentally guesses right, then there'll be some distraction and, oh no, look, the cops. Right. And the whole operation will disappear. Soapy Smith used that uh, technique a lot because as he got more and more successful and prominent in Denver, he started to put the local cops and local uh, government officials on his payroll. And Frontier Denver was was a place where there was quite a bit of corruption. And so Soapy was running now an empire of different Confidence games, legitimate gambling, novelties, uh, prostitution, and he was paying off all of the local law enforcement and masquerading somewhat as a as a uh, not a upstanding citizen, but a legitimate one, a prominent local businessman. And and in in and spoiler alert, this is how the movie The Sting ends, but. If somebody did get up on the house, there was always a bust. There was always a... Oh, right. Uh, if you have real cops, you don't need to do the fake thing. That's right. There was always a, a, a way. But, but as, uh, as the 1880s progressed, a reformist gover- governor came into Colorado and tried boo. to... Boo. And tried to shut down all the vice in Denver. Boo. At which point, Soapy and his crowd... Uh, moved out to a town called Creed, Colorado, which was a, a pop-up mining town that became, you know, just a classic Old West kind of wild, wild lawless Just place. like now, pop-ups are super popular. And They were doing ice cream sandwiches and gold mining. And they set up shop there and became, you know, your one-stop vice shop. He, uh, uh, Jefferson found a, um, like a petrified man some kind of wait a real one well yeah and we have one of those here in Seattle down at ye old curiosity <laughs> shop seen it. have you ever have you ever seen him yes the uh the 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 dried up husk of a of an old prospector that's got a mysterious bullet hole i always assumed it was fake it seems like Just, it would be weird to have a have have like a live or, you know a human being in a glass case, but that's been at the year old curiosity shop for, for a long, long time. 
maybe predating laws about not doing that. Laws about not doing it. <laughs> I but, guess that's the ultimate green funeral, I guess. That's what I want to happen to me when I go. Put me in the curiosity shop. Put you shop. in the curiosity shop and people can come poke at the poke at your bullet like, wound. Combine me with like some kind of uh, taxidermy uh you know, armadillo. Maybe Sam a basilope. Maybe I will have to shoot you in order for you to end up in that position and then I'll be the Soapy Smith. I need a colorful nickname. Instead of aces and eights, I'll be clutching omnibus show notes. He got his nickname Soapy from a pretty clever scam, which was he would set up a a uh, little apple crate and he was selling soap. And the premise was that he would wrap money around a bar of soap and then wrap it in a plain white wrapper. And he would put a dollar under, uh, under a wrapper of one piece of soap and $10 under another, and then a hundred dollar bill mm. around a bar of soap. And then he would mix up all the soap, put them into a, you know, a, a a big pyramid, and for a dollar, you could buy a soap and take your chances. It's Willy Wonka's golden ticket, essentially. It's exactly that. And the Today, it probably violates gambling laws, but not in Creed, Colorado. Not in Creed, Colorado, not in Denver. And he was running this, he was running this scam, and of course, it was, uh, it was hugely popular. He would, you know, he would have his, his accomplice in the, in the crowd, Get a get the twenty dollar bar of soap and rejoice, wave their twenty dollars in the air. Oh my god, I did it! He would he would mark stuff so that you he knew where stuff was. Yeah, it was all sleight of hand stuff. It, um, you know, he never gave away a hundred dollar bill to any um, to any mark on the street. I mean, because that is a. I mean, you could actually that's a legitimate business you could run as long as you figured out you were giving out less in prizes than. The cost of the soap, right? But he did not choose to do that. No, he was he was he was doing it, and he was also scamming. There's an easier way. He got arrested at one point, and the cop couldn't couldn't uh, remember his first name and just called him Soapy. Uh, and after that, it became his sobriquet, his nom de guerre. Sobriquet. Sobriquet. Ugh. I don't know. I don't. If I had a bat, I would I would whack you with it from here. Six feet away, you can't touch me. Anyway, eventually he was uh, the the governor. You know, uh, his campaign against Vice dissipated, and Soapy ended up back in Denver. Became now a, a true empire builder, and eventually was too hot even uh, even for Denver. Denver started to get to be a big town, and as a result, needed to have at least a a, a facade of of straight ways. You couldn't continue to have the sheriff and the mayor be on the, on the pimp's payroll. You can't put caveat emptor outside your bar or outside of your city hall. (laughs) And right about this time in, uh, 1897, gold was discovered in the Yukon territories. Mm. During this period, you know, gold prospecting was a form of frontier adventure, just as, beaver pelts, hunting, trapping. Um, it was a way of exploring these territories and getting rich quick. But most people, I assume, did not. It probably attracted a lot of out-of-their-depth city people who not lost at, their shirts. Not at the not initially, right? It, initially, there, wasn't, there was not really uh, perceived to be an abundance of gold uh, in, in Alaska. Alaska was a fairly recent... Purchase 
by the United States. Oh, you mean before the rush? There before was, the rush, there was not a lot of people being like, "I'll make my way." I see. No, it was kind of a it, it was kind of a, a style at, at the late in the late eighteen hundreds. There had been a, a real loss of confidence in the financial world of the East Coast, and a variety of financial panics. Right, there were all these panics, and gold was then as now perceived as the only true way that you could have reliable wealth that wasn't vulnerable to um, devaluation. And so there was a sense ever since the gold rush of uh, San Francisco in 1849, there was a sense that you could, if you were a person of a certain amount of uh, adventure, you could head out, strike out on your own and potentially make your fortune in a way that I think anybody that's spent any time gold mining realizes the actual amount of work you put into mining gold. If you had just gotten a job at an office, you if, you would, had, if you had got that many steps in at literally any other field, <laughs> yeah, you could have worked half as hard and made twice as much money, but there's, so, there's a lot of romance to pulling money out of the ground. And, um, and there were, you know, prospectors looking for all manner of, of mineral wealth in Yukon territories and in Alaska, which were, you know, completely unexplored by Europeans at this point, set the central Alaskan and Canada, uh, and a, uh, and a prospector by the name of George Carmack, who was a, a European guy who had married, uh, an Indian gal of the, the Tagish tribe. He and his wife and her brother, a man by the name of Skookum Jim. Skookum, there's some Chinook jargon. There's more, more Chinook jargon. And, uh, and their nephew, Dawson Charlie. The four of them were just out prospecting and living, uh, living a rough life. And following, you know, some, some hints, you know, the two prospectors would run into one another coming through the rye and they would share kind of, uh, little hints and guesses like, oh, have you looked up, have you looked up that pass up there? It seems like it might be full of gold. Shouldn't they not do that? Shouldn't they give misleading hints? And, and There's so much territory to cover mm. that, uh, that at least in those days when you're only dealing with uh, 15 people in the whole of the Yukon territories, it seems like there's more than enough creeks to go around. But they went up uh, a creek that later became known as Bonanza Creek and discovered gold. And it was a, it was a pretty rich load of gold and word got out fast. And in that first sort of late summer of 1896, this was a time when you could put stakes in the ground and go register the Register that land at the at the nearest land office, and it belonged to you. Oh, yeah, a stake was literally a stake, right? That's why it's called that. That's right. I put a piece of wood in the ground, and, put, then and I'll, another I'll be back. piece of wood up the creek here, and that whole area is mine. This was uh, this was a kind of placer mining that that took a lot of different forms, right? There's gold that was in the stream that you could just pan, right? But then uh, all that gold is washing down from a vein that is somewhere up in the hills. And maybe it washed down a long time ago. Maybe it's washed down, you know, maybe it's worn away and washed down very recently. The whole idea of panning for gold or any kind of sluicing for gold is that it, gold is heavier than other rocks. And so 
the gold will naturally sift down into the sand at the bottom of a stream. And it means that you have to dig down quite a ways into the stream bed to find the place where the gold would settle up against bedrock or some kind of impermeable rock. And it, it would be there that the gold would collect. But in the hills surrounding, you know, up the slope in various, in, in either direction, there's a lot of earth that would have been formerly, former, formerly stream bed. So there's another form of mining, which is to nearby one of these gold drenched creeks to actually take the dirt up the hill and dig down looking for gold that was deposited at an earlier time. A lot of places to look, though. A lot of work to be done. And then at, 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 uh, at kind of its ultimate form, there's trying to find the vein, trying to find the gold that is, that's coming out of the rock somewhere far upstream. And at that point, you're doing hard rock gold mining where you're digging shafts. You're, you're going in chasing the actual vein. That's where we get the expression pay dirt, right? Like you, you finally find the dirt that actually pays. You find the dirt and it, and you can often, you know, digging in the dirt, find an old stream bottom where you have, where you have this tremendous wealth of gold. So you're not seeing a seam of gold. Even when you find it there, it's probably dust that had been deposited over but, the years. But dust that takes the form of a seam oh, or a that- vein because it's... You know, it all collected at a certain point. Oh, is that what a vein? A vein is not gold that was molten and comes out of the ground. A a vein actually is sedimentary gold dust that collected? No, a vein is what you would find in hard rock where gold was part of a geological process that, you know, that ended up seeping into cracks in granite. Right. But then this other form of um, paid dirt, which would be dirt rather than rock, yeah. uh, you do find gold in layers. This is a kind of gold that although it's very difficult to access, it is accessible by four people with shovels and pans. Hard, hard rock mining it requires explosives and teams of people. It's, it's extremely dangerous and intensive and industrial process almost. But with four shovels and a, and a lot of hard work, you can... If you find a, a a rich strike, you could make a tremendous amount of money. You got to have a donkey, right? Uh, you can work without a donkey, but a donkey will help. The thing about mining gold in a stream is that you have water there to wash away the lighter dirt. Right. If you're working uphill, you have to transport water up there to do that work for you. You still and, you still use water as the way to sift through sluice through the right. You're, and instead of a sluice box, you would use a rocker box, which is basically a like it looks like a baby rocker. You put the dirt in, and you have a little handle, and you rock it back and forth, and pour water in, and it and it, and it works the same way. I'm Shift. intrigued and a little upset at how much you know about the different uh, tools here. Well, I worked at a gold mine mm. when I was in high school, and it was not in Canada. But it was in the area around Circle Hot Springs in northern Alaska. Um, and the circle in Circle Hot Springs refers to the Arctic Circle. Pretty far up then. It is. And there were people still, and there are still to this day, but when I was in high school, a, a friend of my dad's would spend every summer up working his claim 
And it is, was is that a common student job there instead of delivering pizza or whatever? I had a good friend, a man by the name of Bob Wood, who his summer job was working on gold mines, not up in a circle, but in um but kind of out in western Alaska. And he got started doing just basic stuff, the same stuff that I was doing, uh just mucking sluice boxes and and uh and running running errands and over time became a pretty uh important worker on the site and then went to college and got a degree in mining engineering and as far as i know is still working as a Gold miner now in his fifties. Wow! But it, at, you know, at the level, at sort of, I guess, what you would call the corporate level of mining. He so, keeps on searching for that heart of gold, and he's getting old. Oh my god! I really wish that you did a podcast with someone else. <laughs> a, a form of industrializing this process, this river mining process, uh, is a there's a machine, and it's a giant machine. Some of them as big as a hotel called a gold dredge and a gold dredge is like a boat, um, like a paddle wheel boat, except it floats in about an inch of water. And it's a sometimes five, six story wooden machine that can take up the entire river bottom and run all that dirt up to the top via conveyor belts. And then, sluice it, shake it and sluice this this tremendous volume of earth down through the the house structure, collecting the gold at the bottom, and then leaving behind what are called tailings. And tailings are any sort of pile of dirt that has been worked. Right. But, but dredges leave these tailings that are 15 feet high. Um, but think of all the toothless old sourdoughs you're putting out of work with one of these things. Well, but you know they were they were dredging the Con, uh, the Klondike River only a few years after this uh, at, after the major strike at Dawson. Hmm. Um, I mean, there were there were sluice or I'm sorry, there were dredges working in California in mid 1800s. So it's it is a way that minor 49ers get a get a manageable job. Anyway, the strike at Dawson. Uh, the word got out really fast, but the problem is that Dawson was not accessible to uh, b- by any normal means. You could take a boat from Seattle all the way up around, up the Yukon River, all the way to Dawson, but it was a voyage of many months. Um, yeah, it's a Jack London plot point how hard it is to get there. It is, right. The you Call of the Wild is written sled. about this very this very thing. Yeah. The closest route, overland route, to the gold fields in the Yukon was through an Alaskan town, just a tiny little Alaskan town called Skagway, and its neighboring little village called Dai. And the two... Dai? Dai. How do you spell that? Uh, well, it's not spelled like you would think. Um, Dai, and this is, this is another word that Chichacos either know or don't. Uh, but it's spelled D Y E A. It looks looks like diarrhea. Diarrhea. Yeah, diarrhea. Without the R. But it's actually Dai, and it's a little. Uh, it it was a you know a sort of nothing place, a cabin or two, uh, 
before it was realized that this trail, and it was a, you know, there were a lot of trails from the coast to inland that were used by Native Americans as trade routes. But it was realized that this route was sort of the the shortest and fastest route, despite going over a kind of brutal mountain pass uh, that, and, and at the top of the pass was the border with Canada. So you were, um, to arrive in Skagway in the first place from Seattle involved a kind of expensive and long trip by boat up the inside passage, at which point you were deposited in this little Western town and then had to climb up a extremely difficult, impassable pass through terrible weather and then make a trip by boat, by hand, hand built boat down whitewater rapids to get into a river system that would eventually take you to Dawson. Exciting. It was exciting. And it did not, all this difficulty did not dissuade, uh, people in 18, uh, 1897, when they heard about this incredibly rich gold strike in Dawson. And a lot of the way that they heard about it was in the spring, the first boat coming down from the gold claims landed in Seattle with a million dollars in gold. Wow. Which was an extraordinary amount of time, uh, amount of money at the time, an unfathomable amount. And the idea that you could go up to this uncharted territory of Alaska and make and just pull gold from the ground was irresistible. In and, fact, and this was their closest bank. They had to come all the way down to Seattle. It, they did, and Seattle was also the closest supplier. Yeah, and so uh, they went to REI. This gold rush really made Seattle. In fact, the mayor of Seattle resigned his job and got on the first boat to <laughs> the Yukon. Oh boy! This intersects with my family again because my great grandfather was one of these. Minor 98ers. Doesn't rhyme. Who, uh, Couldn't you be an excavator 98er? Excavator 98er. Much better. Uh, Terminator 98er. And he made, this, he made this trip up to the Yukon. And like most people that made the trip, ended up busted. Um, because the Canadians very quickly, there was a lot of, already a lot of tension between Canada and Alaska. Most of the gold was on the Canadian side? It was on the Canadian side, but you could only get to it through Alaska, and neither Canada nor Alaska were playing very nice with each other because these borders were largely unsurveyed and disputed. Skagway, the Canadians had claimed to it for a long time. I mean, it was a a complicated relationship, and the, the Mounties established a a very strong presence in the Klondike from an early from an early point. They uh, they they built a checkpoint at the top of this pass, and I should say that the that the name of this trail was the Chilkoot Trail. This this is the almost impassable pass. The almost impassable pass. The Chilkoot Trail was was uh, how it was referred to, and Chilkoot is another word in Alaska that um that is a kind of uh, sort of a legendary Alaskan name. There's a, the most famous bar in Anchorage is called Chilkoot Charlie's. And uh, the Chilkoot was part of the, uh, one of the things that established that Alaskan identity. Have you ever been to Hyder, by the way? Do you know this about this, this some little town? It's like the easternmost town in Alaska and you can only get there via Canada. So it's effectively a Canadian town. All the 
all the speed limit signs are in metric and so forth. I I feel like there's a is this through is this through Fort or is it through Fort Rupert? Maybe Fort, it's like the southeasternmost point of Alaska, almost. My or Prince Rupert. I'm sorry. Right. Uh, my dad, I think, went there at some point because he liked to collect that kind of place. But no, I've never been. But I have hiked the Chilkoot Trail. Um, it's not so impassable anymore. Well, so the Chilkoot Trail uh, attracted tens of thousands of potential prospectors who were flooding into the Yukon, even though by the time the word got to Seattle, all of the great claims, the gold claims in that area had all been snapped up by... M- much less by the time a bunch of kids from Nashville or whatever got to Seattle to got get to on the Seattle. boat. That's right. What the Canadians had done very cleverly was to say, look, we don't want a bunch of vagabonds, kind of like they do now. We don't want a bunch of American expatriates coming up here and, and sucking off the healthcare, the, the plenitude of Canada. So you need to bring with you, if you're coming to Dawson, you need to bring with you one ton of supplies, enough to support you for a year in Canada if you make no money. A ton? One ton. You can't bring enough money to buy a ton of supplies no. because you'd have to supply yourself in Seattle, right? I, I, I do not think that you could because Dawson City had no supplies Walmart. at first. And so the, the Canadians actually at the top of this pass built a scale and they would weigh your goods in order to determine whether or not to allow you into Canada. And so this, uh, this prospect of arriving in Skagway, procuring one ton of supplies and making this trek across this, this incredible pass that was too steep for pack animals. And now you've got to get there with a ton. You've got to get there with a ton, which meant that people... That's a um, lot of trail mix. How, yeah, how did people do it? So what the, uh, what the Canadians wanted you to have was 150 pounds of bacon, 400 pounds of flour, 25 pounds of oats, 125 pounds of beans. It's not just a ton total. They, they tell you how many beans you need. Yep. 10 pounds of tea, 10 pounds of coffee, 25 pounds of sugar. If you think of a 25-pound bag of sugar. What if I don't drink coffee? It doesn't matter. Will they let me take? It doesn't like, matter. You have to bring these. You have, post you, them? You, you need cigarettes and pantyhose, Ken. I don't care if you're going to use them or not. I think about schlepping 25 pounds of sugar up oh a mountain pass uh, and leaving it there and going back down for your 25 pounds of dried potatoes. And then forty doing this 40 times. So it ended up that you needed to make about 60 trips. Wait, 80, 80 times. Yeah. I mean, my math was wrong. If you could, if you can carry, you know, uh, imagining 30 or 40 pounds, but per time, 60 trips. That's right. 60 trips in order to make this. And you also needed it. Are there like lockers? No, there were not lockers. And it was an area, you know, this was a a realm of a lot of theft and graft. Yeah. Um, People got into the haulage business. People would, uh, a lot of like indigenous people would act as haulers and carry your stuff up kind of in a Sherpa style, but then would change their price, you know, halfway through because once you had half your, half your stuff up there, you know, you needed to get the other half up. A lot of people abandoned their ton of goods, uh, on the side of the ground. When we hiked the Chilkoot trail in, uh, and it was in 1976, we made the trip as a family. There were still, uh, the bones of a thousand oxen just wow. littering this and, and all kinds of rusty pails. I mean, you could pick up artifacts, the entire old shoes, 
uh, still like leather shoes that had survived 80 years yeah. or whatever living up there, um, just lying around on the ground. Now, I think uh, it's much more of a... It's much more of a protected environment now than it was in 76. It was kind of still pretty wild to, to hike the Chilkoot Trail then. And we did it as a family because my family is crazy. It's not a – it's a very ambitious hike then? It's, it's extremely hard. And the, the thing about it was that, that the, the, to do it in the summer increased the hardship because most of the land leading up to the mountain was – boggy, swampy, muddy garbage. And so people made the trip in the winter because the mining season was so short in the summer. If you spent a whole summer trying to get up to Dawson, by the time you got there, it was fall and everything froze. The creek's frozen. You can't sluice. So what you would do is make that trip in the winter. And a lot of people started in 1897, 1898, making this journey in the winter so that they could be there in Dawson at the thaw and get started mining. Well, Soapy Smith heard about this uh, this gold rush and immediately beat a hasty path to Skagway, where with his crew of grifters, they set themselves up in what was effectively a lawless beach harbor. Um, on the Canadian side, the Mounties had a, a, a very... Uh, a very strong and in I think in in most assessments uh, an unimpeachable presence, right? The Mounties were Dudley Do rights. They didn't take bribes. They were, for the most part, law enforcing, law fearing. It's all the red Canadians. outfits. Like in a in that kind of a bleak white environment, you, you trust the guy with a nice red. Well, yeah. Blouse. I mean, if you're if you're in a if you hold out your hand uh, behind your back for a little bit of a, a little bit of graft. Against that red backdrop, that's really obvious to any <laughs> anybody looking. But Soapy Smith set himself up and became effectively the de facto mayor and governor of Skagway. Because on the American side, there just wasn't that law enforcement. Uh, one of the first things he did was set up a telegraph office and started, you know, uh, charging young prospectors a lot of money to send telegraphs to their, you know, parents back in America who were wondering if they'd gotten there. Okay, he had an internet cafe, basically. He did, and it and it was a, a real money earner, especially given that a telegraph line did not arrive in Skagway until 1901. <laughs> so, so was he just throwing away the wadding the message up and throwing them away? They would they'd send a they'd send a message to their mom, and then later on that day, their mom would write back. <laughs> Saying, you know, good luck, son. Make sure you wire us money through this telegraph office. He had all that's kinds of... That's why you got to ask your mom security questions. That's right. Like, what's the secret ingredient in your buttermilk biscuits? Let's hope you try that. It was a, um, it was a real uh, Wild West environment. And he had, he opened a bar called Jeff Smith's Parlor. And it was a kind of den of iniquity. That implies that he doesn't like to be called Soapy. He's trying to rebrand. Uh, I think I think by this point he was pretty widely regarded as Mr. Soapy, but he was a uh, he was proud of the fact that he was a villain and wore it as a badge of honor. There were a lot of prospectors also coming back through Skagway with their pokes filled with gold, and so he was running 
scams on both sides, right? He was scamming uh, naive prospectors who had just arrived and scamming wealthy dupes as they made their way to Skagway and back to Seattle. So running gambling parlors, running uh, bunko games, just trying every method to strip off the cream from this uh, this enormous enterprise. Can you help me understand, maybe this is coming later, what is the ameliorating thing about him that as an Alaskan schoolboy I'm supposed to admire or find charming? Well, is, the, it, is it his cunning? In the end, he, uh, he, he ripped off one miner too many and mm. a group of, as in any Western town, after you have built the hotels and whorehouses and bars, the next thing to get built, or maybe the first thing to get built is a church. And the God-fearing, upstanding citizens of what was becoming the, the sort of Skagway local, locals decided that they were going to put up a fight. As soon as you get women in bonnets. That's right. They're as not going to put up with the can-can dancers anymore. As soon as there's a straight bunko game uh, <laughs> that the moms are playing, the bad bunko game starts to look pretty bad. So they formed a group of people called the Committee of 101, uh, 101 local citizens to fight back. Uh, Soapy responded by forming a Committee of 303, which had 303 villains on it. But they're... They're uh, outnumbered. They don't have a chance. And Skagway had been up until this point a place where you just sort of beached your boat and started throwing supplies off into the sand. But as it got to be a bigger and bigger enterprise, they... um, they built a pier and then a few piers. So one fateful day, uh, the middle of July in 1898, Soapy Smith went down to the pier to, uh, to have a confrontation with the committee of 101 who were, who were uh, ready to run him out of town on a rail. And he felt very confident that he could go down and uh, with a combination of sweet talking and bribery, he could, he could, Solve the situation, but it's always worked for him before. He had pissed off enough people, and a man by the name of Frank Reed, who was the in the employ of the city of Skagway, got into a verbal altercation with him and pulled out a pistol. And um, Soapy was also armed, and the two of them got into a gunfight on the pier. So and, much for the law-abiding committee of one hundred and one. Well, that's the thing. Frank Reed was a was a little bit of a you scratch a one hundred and one, or and you find a three hundred three. Or he was a. He was incensed, I think, at um, and you know he probably had read a few chick tracks. He was, he had, uh, he had a little fire and brimstone in him. But uh, Frank Reed shot him. There is a kind of suspicion or uh, varying accounts that say actually the final, uh, the final killing shot was uh, was fired by a man, man named Jesse Murphy, who walked up to the wounded. Soapy Smith and shot him in the heart. Wow, this is a guy with a with an axe to grind. Apparently, yeah. and uh, and uh, Frank Reed died twelve days later. So you know nobody um, like there was no. I guess I guess maybe Jesse Murphy walked away having felt like he got off on. He should be the folk hero. That could, there should be statues of him outside every uh, Alaskan public school. But for whatever reason, Soapy Smith. Uh, became a character of the sort of Jack London larger mythology of Alaska the the unreformed unreformable uh person who was um unethically profiting from all of the chichacos all of the 
of the land scrapers. I guess he just symbolizes the, a time, right? Yeah. He's, uh, he's standing in for a, a more lawless, freer era. By 1900, they'd, uh, they'd circumvented the, uh, the Chilkoot Trail by building a railroad, the White Pass Yukon Railroad. Uh, around the side that took you all the way up to Lake Bennett, kind of, uh, you know, obviating the need to do all of this terrible. And you could, if you had a, if you had a railroad, you could take that ton of prospecting goods up the river with no trouble. But the gold rush was mostly all the, all the land was claimed. All the gold was, had increasingly, the claims had been sold and sold again until ownership of the gold was consolidated. Dawson, City uh, remained a kind of wild west, burned down a few times. I've been to Dawson. This was all part of my childhood. I've ridden the White Pass Yukon Railroad. These are like field trips and, yeah. and, and family road trips? I mean, my dad had a small plane, so it was mm. family plane trips. But um, but in the 70s, they, there was still a lot of uh, unpainted remnants of this stuff. It hadn't been national parkified. By the 80s, both sides, which had had made parks around the uh, the principal sites, mm-hmm. combined those parks into an international Klondike Gold Rush park, and it actually has a component here in Seattle, uh, down in Pioneer Square. There's yes. a Klondike Gold Rush park that's part of this international park system. As I, it's just, it's just a, a, a building. It's a little museum. Yeah. But as I understand it, it's the smallest property administered by the National Park Service uh, because it's a little island of this other park. Yeah, that's right. It's a, and, and all of that gold was brought here to Seattle, and it's, the, it's what made us uh, a prosperous city. It's why, the, why Alaskans often refer to Seattle sort of uh, as the capital of Alaska, but they say it with a sneer. Because we know? stole their money. We did. It's we capital with money. a K. They said that uh, that the amount of gold dust that fell through the floor of the assaying office here in Seattle uh, ended up being a small fortune uh, because you know they'd pour the the gold dust out on the scales and enough of it would fall to the ground. So it's whoever operated the Roomba, whoever operated the whoever whoever had the good foresight to pull up the floor and get down there with a shovel and a gold pan. But there is still there. Uh, Soapy Smith is still lauded in song and story. In 1983, there was a play called The Ballad of Soapy Smith that, that debuted here at Bagley Wright in the Seattle. The Ballad of Soapy Smith. He gave funerals to <laughs> prostitutes. And every year on July 8th, a big celebratory dinner is held at the Magic Castle in L.A. Why? to commemorate Soapy Smith as being one of the great... Card sharps, oh. the most famous sort of close-up magician grifters of uh, there were there was. I guess he actually made a living at it, unlike most close-up magicians. That's right, and and uh, I mean he never had a TV special. He died with a with a a bullet through his deck of cards. But, but but really, I mean, most magicians probably expect that. I mean, I think a lot of them hope it. A lot of them deserve it. <laughs> and that concludes Soapy Smith. Entry 1178.2T0313, certificate number 35570, in the omnibus. Before we leave you, we remind you that John and I, as products of our time, uh, our social media has not been national parkified yet. You can find it as it was, at Ken Jennings, at John Roderick, and at Omnibus Project on various social media platforms. 
You can email us uh, your urgent communiques at theomnibusproject at gmail.com, and we will send you pretend replies from Ken, just like Soapy Smith would if he were here with us today. You can find fellow Futurelings congregating on Facebook, Reddit, and Discord. Just search for the magic word Futurelings. No big corporation has stolen it yet. You can send us physical uh, objects. Please send us your gold dust uh, to Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. If you send us a full ton, then uh, you are allowed to uh, to listen to the show. Yeah. Uh, Alternately, other ways to support the show besides proving you have a full ton of beans and uh, pork fat uh, is you could go to our Patreon and decide what uh, amount of uh, gold dust you can personally spare to to ensure the omnibus continues. Um, You can become a supporter of the show and earn great benefits like access to our monthly addenda shows at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. Futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past, when card sharps and gamblers still met an inglorious end uh, at the at the uh, business end of a derringer, or should. We have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.